Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Alan Say. Alan is the global CLO and company secretary of JLL, the world's largest real estate services company. Now, it's a fantastic discussion. Really enjoyed it. A couple of highlights for me. You know, um, Alan takes us through his journey, um, the impact of COVID on both the JLL business as well as his team, and how, in fact, his wife even challenged him as to whether he was qualified before taking on the role as CLO of JLL. That's a great story. I think my favourite part of this podcast is um, uh, listening to Alan talk about the importance and ability to project calm, um, even if you're feeling um, uh, panicked or um, in the throes of a fire, and to be able to think strategically and make decisions based on imperfect information. We always find ourselves in those positions. And how, in fact, his early training as a chess champion helped him with those skills. So it's a really interesting discussion. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Now, Alan... Fantastic career. I'm just going to give a couple of highlights, but then I'm going to go pre-career if I can. So you've spent time, spent some time in a law firm. Uh, you're currently, of course, the global CLO and company secretary of JLL. And before that, you've had senior GC positions at companies like Petco, Churchill Downs, LG Electronics, and the list goes on. But before we get into your career, my research tells me that you've got more than a passing interest in chess. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, that was a long time ago, but before I even get started on that, it sounds like I can't keep a job uh, when, <laughs> when you walk through it that way. But yeah, I used, it was a long time ago, but I used to um, play chess competitively, high school and college mostly, and actually helped myself put uh, myself through college playing chess a little bit. So, but it's a long time ago. It's a, it's a good, I'm trying to think, 25, 30 years since I played competitively. Is that right? And tell me, ranked nationally too at that time? Yep, I, I was. I loved the game. Um, and I still have some friends who are still into it. And I still follow it. The World Championship uh, yep. candidates match is going on right now. So I was following some of that today. Um, I obviously uh, definitely can feel my age because as I'm following it, I'm losing the thread all over the place. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's a definitely a fun time in my life. And an interesting kind of, um, I just think about the discipline, the skills, the smarts, actually, as a grounding for uh, then you know a career in law. Any kind of parallels there between playing chess um, and a career in law? Actually, I learned more from my chess days um, that I use today as a GC than I do it from law school, for instance. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, one yeah. is just a, just the ability to concentrate in and to think and to think strategically through something, but much more tactically. You know, in chess, it's a, you get judged on the one mistake you make. However, you have to make the 50 good moves um, in order to win. So you can't be paralyzed by fear of making that one mistake. And literally, a clock is ticking. You don't have unlimited time. You actually have a, a limited amount of time to think through what you need to think through. So you're always making decisions with imperfect information. And lastly, 
it's also a place you can't hide, right? If you do make that mistake, you lose. So you have ultimate accountability and you have a rating. Uh, so how good are you at those judgment calls? Of, of how comfortable are you at making those decisions? And if you're not, you end up running out of time. Uh, so there's a, a whole lot of skills, time management, all those things that come into place in terms of what I do today, right? Because I'm asked to make make judgment calls with imperfect information all the time. That makes perfect sense, actually. Um, okay, so uh, currently, as I said, CLO uh, of JLL. Tell me a little bit about the uh, path to your current destination, the kind of influencing factors, maybe some turning points um, over the course of your career, and, and then we'll dive a bit into the into some detail around um, your current position at JLL. Yeah, as you kind of mentioned, it's been a, it's not been a straight road. It's been a little bit turning along the way and serendipity and a little bit of luck. You know, I went to law school to be a litigator. Uh, I'm old. I, I grew up in the L.A. law generation in the 80s. And that's what I thought lawyers were. Arnie yeah. on the L.A. law. Arnie yeah, Becker. Shout out to that. That's right. Arnie Becker. That's exactly right. Um, again, of course, most of the audience is thinking, well, what are they talking about? But, I know. Uh, All these references. Uh, I use them and some yep. of my lawyers look at me like, what did he just say? Yeah. What you... As a long-time litigator, Alan, I feel you uh, and I hear you and I understand you on that. We've got to get the show on Netflix. That's to get yeah. some of the youngsters to yeah, actually know what I'm talking about. C correct, correct. Um, okay, so um, a lit litigator, g going to law school, school, thinking about being a litigator. And, and my only frame of reference is a TV show. And lo and behold, you know, the practice of law is not like LA law. Not quite. You no. know, to, to be a litigator in a large law firm, you don't actually get to like wear cool suits and just like, you know, go to parties all the time and you know, be surrounded by beautiful people. You actually have to like, they expect you to work. They expect you to do a lot of research and writing as, you know, as your litigator can attest to. And uh, I found out very quickly that that's probably not something that fits my skill set. So um, luckily for me, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and I had a lot of friends, both from my high school and college days, that were uh, working in this place called Silicon Valley, which we didn't even use to call it that when I was growing up. Um, and they're telling me how great a place it was, right? All the innovation that was happening and all the energy and, that uh, was happening there. And I just thought, you know what? This sounds like something I want to explore. So I, I started off life in a law firm in Silicon Valley in the 90s doing IPOs, M&As. Uh, with lots of venture capital firms. Um, and, and then the, the, the journey from there? Yeah, so I ended up doing a couple of startups. So um, like everybody else, um, I caught the bug. Um, so I joined a company, it was a telecom equipment company called Centerpoint. Um, and I joined them as a general counsel and VP of strategy. Um, and the whole thought behind that was I was being a lawyer uh, to my clients and essentially giving business advice but never been in a business in my life, never ran a business, never even sniffed a business in my life. And I thought, you know what? It might be interesting to actually learn business. So it was an opportunity for me to jump into a company. It was about 500 people at the time. It was one of the original unicorns before the, the term was even out there um, to really learn the business. And, uh, and so I was in charge of everything except the sales side of the business, essentially, um, and which is great. That's the good news. The bad news part of it is uh, timing couldn't have been worse. Um, we were a company let, that was... Let me guess, around about 2000. Am I, am I right there? Exactly. So yeah. we were a company that was um, had the better mousetrap. We had technology that can increase bandwidth uh, flowing through a fiber optic uh, line, except that all the startups were dying at the time, so therefore there was no demand for bandwidth. So we actually grew the company and we tore it all the way down. 
um, which is sad. But it also taught me some very important lessons in um, that things don't always go up and just a lot of human lessons uh, associated with it, right? I help uh, hire a lot of people and I got to know the families, got to know people personally. And then as things were going their way down, I also recognized, yeah, let them go and, and how difficult that was and how those decisions really impacted people's lives. In terms of lessons learned there, is it more caution on hiring? Is it, um, is it empathy when things get, start getting tougher? Is it just recognizing you're actually dealing with people's, uh, people's careers, people's lives? All of the above, empathy, definitely. But also taught me that I didn't want to be a CEO. I mean, I, I, I jumped into this thinking that I might want to be a CEO one day. And I realized how tough and what that responsibility was from that perspective. And also just from a human perspective, right? When things were, were not looking great, you know, my CEO's job and his duty, and I don't fault him for it, that was his job, had to be the head cheerleader for the company. And when all I wanted to do was just scream from the mountaintops, you know, this is not going to work. So I learned, I grew up a lot uh, professionally from that experience. Um, and I did another startup after that. But after that, I decided, you know what, I'm really, really good at this, um, you know, being GCs for companies that don't make any money. Perhaps I need to like join a company that actually makes some money and build up that side of the skill set. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I read somewhere. And I have to say, I, had to, I smiled um, ear to ear when I did read this, um, that um, before taking your position at JLL, your wife asked you whether you were really qualified um, for taking on the CLO position at JLL. And um, I, I, I'd love to understand the background of that and, and perhaps whether you, whether you think she might have been right at the time. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought, thought she was right. Uh, I was general counsel at Petco at the time, which is a retailer. Um, with 1,500 stores, about $5 billion in revenue. And JL was a different animal. JL was um, about $18 billion in revenue. Um, the legal team was about 175 lawyers. Well, why? We have 92,000 employees. So those 175 lawyers, uh, about 175 of them, had more corporate real estate experience than I did. So as, a, as I'm interviewing for this job out here in Chicago, um, yeah, that was definitely a thought that she had when you were talking to Anthony. So you've never been in corporate real estate. Uh, never led this size of team globally. Uh, Petco was very much a domestic company. And so what makes you qualified? And um, after I, I thought about it for a second and, and um, thought, thanks for the vote of confidence there, um, the answer that um, popped in my head was, well, I've been unqualified before, and I somehow succeeded. And, and you know, there's there's some levity in that, but there's also some some realness in that in the sense that um, anything that I've ever tackled, um, you know, from the startups early days of being GC for LG Electronics, my first company actually made money, to uh, my first public company, all those are challenges. All those were things that I didn't necessarily have the skill set for, but hopefully I had the the mentality and the um, just the the confidence that I could learn it and. That's what we do as lawyers, is to learn. Yep. It's funny. I had um, Cam Finlay on the show um, uh, earlier, and he talked about um, recruiters getting it wrong when they go out to recruit GCs, and they say, in the same industry. So you've got to be GC in the pharma industry, in the um, uh, finance, whatever it must be, we're looking for a GC in that industry. And what he was saying is, 
Uh, that's the wrong approach. You're missing out a whole lot of people who can learn, who are really great at learning, and who have got more, uh, who, who can um, learn the skill sets of the industry or learn the nuances of the industry, but then bring uh, to bear their um, unique skill sets there. So he was a huge advocate, at least broadening the net for recruiters and obviously for the for, you know, potential GCs to be going beyond you know the, the industry specific and narrowing too early um, in their career. Well, Cam's been a GC of two Fortune 500 companies in um, very different industries. Yeah, I think so it's he, three, he would know. Three, yeah. 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 So he would know. Yeah. Look, yeah. at the end of the day, what we sell is the same thing. It's judgment, right? At the end of the day, when if the law is, you know, is crystal clear, you don't need me. Any trained monkey can do the job, right? At the Where we get paid and where we get fired <laughs> is to demonstrate that judgment at, at those gray areas. Right when the law, it could be A or it could be B. Well, how would this look three years or five years down the line? How would a jury look at this? How would the court of public opinion look at this? Those are things that are not industry specific, and those are the, the questions that um, have to answer. Uh, yeah, and judgment, as you said, on imperfect information. It's never perfect. It never is, and it's also judgment on twenty twenty hindsight too, which is yep. always my favorite. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's how you typically get judged, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> With twenty twenty hindsight. Um, uh, so, of course, um, JLL, one of the world's largest real estate services company. Tell me about the challenge when COVID hit last year. Um, how is that you know, for you personally, for JLL, and for the legal department? Um, because I, I've heard you say before it was one of the most challenging times in your career. I'd love to learn a bit more about that. Yeah, I, I don't think what I said was so unique. I think a lot of my colleagues have felt the same thing. It was tough. I mean, it was tough on all of us. Um, look, we're a corporate real estate company, and people were not occupying corporate real estate. That's number one. So there's definitely a fear there of what's our business going to look like. Um, and so that that permeates through the C-suite. Like all of us were trying to figure out and try to model what would this business look like in three months, six months, nine months? And how can we ensure that we survive as enterprise? Make sure that there's no liquidity issues and, and things. There's that set of issues. There's also the set of issues with my own team, right? Overnight, people were working in collaborative offices and now they're working at home in varying circumstances, right? You have team members who had to homeschool their children all of a sudden, right? And trying to do a full workday while they're homeschooling their kids. You had team members who were uh, isolated um, you know, living, uh, you know, isolated by themselves, living alone in like New York City, or whatever else, who went from being very social animals to, you know, being in the office and being out and about to being home 24-7. And by the way, this work, the work that we were asked to do was also novel, right? We're asked to, you know, we manage facilities for our clients. And part of that job is to, um, you know, do all the jobs that facilities do. All of a sudden now you have, you know, temperature takers in various parts of the world, right? And we're asking to do that. Well, what's the law with respect to that? Well, there is no law. We never had to do it before and try to navigate all this. this. So that was the challenge facing the company and myself. But the larger challenges in that, with that context is how do I lead? How do I empathize? How can I make sure that my team stays together and not isolate it when I don't get to see them? I have to see them through this medium, right? And to make sure that they understand that you know, when we talk about the fact that we are a family, when we talk about the fact that we're a team, how do we demonstrate that in a 2D screen? Um, and it's hard. It takes a lot of time and effort. And I learned, you know, my first year on the job, 
uh, I flew 400,000 air miles. I flew all over the place to try to make sure I meet my team and got to know the business. And then immediately that stopped. And so instead of seeing me, they saw this computer screen at, at that, if, if that. Um, so in Ketodola pivoting, a lot of time spent in different time zones, um, trying to make sure that the team um, had what they needed in terms of resources, in terms of just connectivity. Um, and to hear people's stories, um, it was difficult. It's a difficult time for everybody. And it's not the most fun job, part of the job because you're kind of dealing with all the negative things uh, during that point too, all the negative aspects of the job. Uh, we had to furlough some employees, for instance, right? That's not fun. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, just uh, mental, just well-being, uh, mental, physical, everything is, I think, one of the most significant challenges um, facing any corporation, you know, their employees, uh, particularly those employees who um, uh, have got, you know, difficult circumstances, whether it's, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's being stuck in a tiny little apartment in New York, um, uh, either by yourself or um, uh, uh, with others, which is not just suited for work, but you've got no choice. All of these, and certainly I know in it, my personal experience, um, thinking about how um, you can empathise and help with everyone's own individual personal challenges. Um, because depending upon the stage of life you're at, your career, your personal circumstances, it all differs and they all bring different challenges. Um, so yeah, no, no doubt, one of the most challenging periods for, um, uh, for all organisations, particularly at the personal level. Yeah, so it's just, tough. Um, you know, everyone's working long hours too. When you work from home, there is no, um, it's, it's very hard to draw that line for folks sometimes. And in a global organization such as ours, where people are in all different time zones, you end up with people, you know, um, 5 a.m. calls and 11 p.m. calls, and those are happening all the time. And for me personally, you know, I'm not a guy who usually works from home. Uh, so I actually don't have a home office set up. So at the time, uh, I was... Uh, in the process of moving, in fact. So at the time, I was actually working out of my daughter's closet. That was my office. I had a little uh, fold-out table set up in there, and that's the only that place right? I can I close the door. I would like to have seen that. Keep it quiet out there. I'm trying <laughs> to work. <laughs> exactly. So uh, anything to work, but you know, trying to make sure that we did that. and But we got through it. I'm very, very proud of the team that we uh, not only got through it, but we thrived, and we were able to Look, the company as whole, you know, we're nearing, we were at an all-time high in terms of our stock price, and, and we just slipped from that just uh, in the last two weeks. But yeah, I think we've recovered uh, from a company standpoint. So we're we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel. So 2021 is uh, hopefully going to be a, a much better and happier year than 2020 was. It, it is extraordinary think, um, to think uh, where we were all projecting projecting 12 months ago um, and the doomsday scenario to think where we are today, I think um, uh, there's an element of gratefulness <laughs> um, in many of us because it, it was certainly being, we were all predicting to be uh, for it to be uh, a lot worse. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think there's certainly some positives. Absolutely. Now, no. now speaking of positives, um, Look, JLL's got a fantastic reputation, particularly, um, I, I know it's won consecutive awards um, for being listed as one of the world's most ethical companies. Uh, I'd love to hear um, a little bit from you about the importance of 
prioritising ethics and what that kind kind of means in, in the business environment. Look, we've been uh, this is our fourteenth year named as the most ethical company. I've been here for three, so obviously I can't take credit for most of that. Um, you know, this company was great before. I think this story. I am. Um, I used to be the general counsel at Churchill Downs, which ran the Kentucky Derby, and I was there. My first Kentucky Derby was one thirty-seven, I believe, and my CEO uh, came to me. Um, it was only about two months after I started. He says, you know, the Kentucky Derby has been around 137 years, Alan. Don't screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that direct kind so, of. At, le- so at least you're clear on what the, um, uh, what, what, what the objective is or, or what not to do. There, there so, can't be too much room for doubt there. Absolutely. But there's, a, like most things, right, there is absolutely a lot of truth in that, right? Because, again, right, I've been here three years and this is, the company's been around much longer than that. And this 14th year that we've won the award, out of the 15 years that they've given the award, I think we won in year two. So part of my job is to don't screw it up, right? To ensure that, that the ethical culture that I inherited, um, you know, lives on. And lives on while we keep growing. I mean, we just did our largest acquisition last year um, in the company's history. Um, you know, we're still growing as a company. We're 92,000 employees and growing. And the challenge for that is as you grow, as you are merging with other firms, with different cultures, with different ethics or standards, how do you teach that? How do you make sure that your our values are uh, teachable, are uh, exportable to our new colleagues who are joining us, and so that they understand the importance of it and why it exists, right? At the end of the day, you know, JLL is what stitches us together globally. It's our brand. It's a shield on that door. Is that share collective, how proud we are to be a part of JL because every one of our brokers, every one of our employees makes a choice to be part of JL each and every day. They can also make a choice not to be part of JL. Same with our clients who entrust us with their business, right? So it's ensuring that our brand is what we sell, is what we go to market with in all segments and the importance of that brand. That's how we teach ethics and values. Um, but there's also just the structural things, right? It has to evolve. You know, things are, are always moving. I'm very, very proud of JL in the sense that yeah, you know, we are just made a commitment to be a leader in sustainability. Right? We manage uh, billions of square foot of space um, globally, so we have a huge um, opportunity to really affect sustainability and climate change and all those, and and to take a carbon neutral position, which we have. So those are things that that we stand for. And hopefully our employees are proud of. And that leads to wanting to make sure that everything we do is of the gold standard, of first class, of, you know, that's who we are. And so at the end of the day, you know, as general counsel, as to some extent, the, the chief reputational officer, chief risk officer here, it's not that I do this. It's the 92,000 employees in the company that has earned the award. Yep. And for any listeners out there that are um, not sure about the importance of kind of what you've talked about, the culture, the ethics, I mean, one of the top reasons for any kind of merger or acquisitions failing is just not being able to, getting the wrong cultures together um, and not being able to get alignment across what's important, um, uh, um, what, what the ethical standards are, what the culture of the organisations are. And if you get that wrong or, or there's just a complete mismatch, um, then that usually doesn't bode well at all for you know, any kind of merger or acquisition. So um, I, I think what you're saying absolutely plays out day in, day out um, in the corporate world. Especially for a people business that we are, right? I mean, we don't sell widgets, we sell people, 
right? We sell our expertise. We sell, um, you know, our judgment. So how we show up every day is immensely important. And again, you know, uh, this was something I inherited. I'm just the guy trying not to screw it up. I like that. Um, I like that motto, actually. Um, now, now tell me, um, Alan, in relation to the running of a legal department, you've, you've mentioned you had 175 lawyers when you joined JLL. What are some of the key things that you focus on to make sure you get the greatest impact? What's the low-hanging fruit you, that you've got to get right? Well, I'm, look, we have 175 employ, uh, lawyers, and I work for every single one of them. That's the way that we think about it. What does that mean? That means that it's my job to deliver the resources. It is my job to deliver the tools, uh, everything that those 175 professionals need to do their job. Because I'm also, uh, I'm very honest and, and to some ways cynical in, in this respect. I say this to my team all the time, which is that, you know, the reason I do this is because I'm very, very selfish. You know. I am trying to make sure that you have everything you need to do a great job so I can take credit for all the great work that you do. So, and, and so that I don't have to do all that much. Um, <laughs> so part of that, right, is to make sure that, that you know, we have a fixed resource. That's right. We do have budgets and everything else. We are a cost center, just like most legal departments are. So how do we maximize that? What, do we, what can we do to maximize the resources so that we have all the great tools that we can do our jobs efficiently? And second is to also relook at our processes, right? As we are evolving as a company, as we're bringing on new businesses, as we are growing, are what we're doing uh, yesterday what we should be doing tomorrow, right? That's part of the job that, that I really enjoy is to thinking that through because the answer can't possibly be if we're growing this much, we'll just have this much more work. And team, you have to do more work. That's unsustainable. Right, so we have to think about ways and how we can think and work smarter, and that's what the legal operations team does to a large extent, um, and help. And we do it. And as you know, we didn't have a legal ops team when I got to jail. Um, it's something that that we put in place to do all the things I just talked about, so that enable our people to be the most effective at their job and to do what they love to do, which is to be great business partners to our business. Yeah, and you mentioned obviously the cost center aspect of being a legal department. Um, uh, we hear a lot on the show about the pressure to um, uh, to be running the department like a business um, uh, and, and what that actually means. Um, no doubt keeping a, um, a rein on costs is one element of that. What, what, what else um, uh, are you expected as the CLO to ensure when you know, running the legal department? It's, it's mean, lean, any, any other? Is that important? And what are the other kind of benchmarks or, um, uh, that, that you're measured by? So it's important in, in the sense that you know, every dollar that we spend or every dollar we save is a dollar in EBITDA that goes in the bottom line. But, much, right. but what's even more important is our ability to affect the top line, right? Um, both in terms of uh, sales enablement, being business partners to the team, and in, also in terms of reputation, right? We have that gatekeeper role. Our job is to both add value to the business and to be the gatekeeper, right? That's just the environment that we live in today, right? How many times have we heard regulators ask, where were the lawyers when some scandal happened, right? And um, and frankly, the way I tell it is, your scandals cost a lot of money to fix. So it's a lot easier for us to be ethical to uh, to make sure that we suss those things out and fix whatever issues we have from the on the front side and try to deal with on the back side. So um, all those sort of things are are 
um, what we do. And they're not a matter of balancing which ones or you just have to do them all well. That's the modern legal department. That's the challenge, but that's also the fun part. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me, uh, are there any things um, uh, that uh, are out there as kind of accepted must-dos or best practice from um, being a GC or running the legal department, which you don't agree with? Um, anything you can think of that, that, that fits that description? I think we talked about it a little bit already, right? I mean, I yep. think Cam was spot on in the sense that, uh, right. that industry experience, and maybe this is very self-serving since I didn't have any, um, yeah. and in some ways I still don't Well, you're still there. Any. It's three years in, yeah. Alan, and you're still yeah. there, and you've weathered probably the most significant storm. Uh, I'm just going to say there is a bit of a habit of storms following you, isn't there? But um, uh, the, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're there after the biggest <laughs> Um, and and uh, as you said, JLL share price is close to its top, so you can't be doing too much wrong. I think there, a lot of GCs, uh, good GCs, a lot of good people in some ways are we're trained to run into the fire to some extent, yeah. right? When the crisis hits, we're there yep. to to manage it and to get through it. So um, yep. that's part of the personality. You know, I definitely have a uh, definitely love challenges and, and run towards those, but it's it's this skill set of of you know. I think there's a great benefit to walk into something sometimes with a fresh set of eyes, right? Yep. With a different perspective that there's a value in that. Um, every single new hire that I hire under the team, um, I take advantage of those sets of eyes. I make sure that, that, you know, those first three months as they are navigating the company, learning the company, I wanted to get their observations unvarnished. So, yep. And what can we do that's better? I mean, those are opportunities there. Um, look, there's a lot of, of great things that people do. Um, in in companies and you know, like I said, I inherited a great team um, that was running a very well well oiled machine. So in some ways, you know, my job was not to screw it up, and hopefully, um, been able to add some value along the way in how yeah. we do things and being a little more efficient in uh, how we support the business. I love that description of just running into the fires, um, and uh, about being. And this is another thing we've heard um, on the show too about being great crisis managers because typically that's when um, that's when the GC gets brought into the fold. There is a crisis going on, and how are you going to handle that crisis? So that crisis management um, skill set certainly one not taught at law school, um, and one that can actually set you um, apart from the rest. You know that that's another thing that another analogy I like to draw from the chess world, right? If you ever watch chess uh, matches, even you watch the Queen's Gambit, which, you know, yeah. most of us have Yeah, what a great chart. Yeah. Um, you don't see a lot of chess players real animated running around with their hair on fire, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the... let, let me think about that. No, that's true. I don't think I have seen a chess player running around screaming or yelling. <laughs> right. We're, we're a bunch of boring individuals to some extent. Um, but that's a great skill set, right, to be able to do that, right, when the crisis hits, when everything in your body is telling you to scream, oh, my God, what am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing. But to remain calm, um, it's the, the same thing, you know, from, from those days. So that's one skill set that I always uh, think back to and very glad that I learned, right, to be able to be thoughtful um, in those times and to uh, just get on with the job at hand, right, and not... Uh, and to really distill what the issues are, what the problems are, and to just solve them, deal with them. You know, just because the issues are bigger and uh, with more gravitas doesn't mean that how you solve them is any different, right? It's just the exact same skill set uh, to do it. And 
you know, I love law school. I am not trying to disparage law school, but yeah, law school doesn't teach a lot of the things that, that you know, we are called upon to, uh, to do these days. And if you think about, and I think uh, myself about any time I've been in a, in a crisis situation, you typically feel and act the way that the leadership in that situation is feeling and acting. Even when you're in a room, depending upon how the most senior person in that room is conducting themselves, that kind of that then gets reflected through throughout everyone else in the room. If that person is in the face of a crisis, calm, cool, collected, and thoughtful. Um, it's amazing the impact that has on everyone else, and 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 the opposite is true. It's true. I'm not sure I've really thought about that, but that um, that that is absolutely the case. I think I've experienced that time and time again, and no doubt you have too. So I think it's an I, I think it's an absolute underrated skill set that being calm um, in the face of um, you know really difficult circumstances. Yeah, even if you're not calm, you have to act calm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Internalize it. That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, uh, tell me, uh, uh, one question I sometimes ask is, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? I wonder whether it might be the last 12 months, um, Alan, but uh, I'll let you answer that. What, what is the hardest thing you think you've ever done? You know, it's a, this is not going to be a legal answer. I think the legal answer would be, you know, going through that first startup, you know, as a 29-year-old trying to lead um, a company and going through that kind of of up and down and going through the business cycle but in terms of the last 12 months you know moving during uh, during a pandemic i moved cross country and moved my family from california to chicago which is uh, not necessarily the hardest thing i've ever done just the dumbest um thing i've ever done <laughs> trying to sell a house move entire family trying to get a house finished and, and doing all that was not the, the smartest thing in the middle of a crisis by the way um so Oh, you survived though. You survived. You're out the other end, um, and uh, I was going to say better for it, but that's that, that's your call. Um, it is what it is. We did it. Yeah, it is what it is. And tell me anything that you look back on to date where you say to yourself, you know, if I had my time again, I'd do that differently, um, uh, whether professionally or personally. But if we, uh, if I ask you professionally, anything that you you want your time over again on. You know, I try to live with no regrets because you're, the decisions you make, you make at that time. Uh, and if you make enough calls, you're going to make some wrong calls. And you look at everything in 2020 hindsight, and you're always a genius. Or the, the people judging you are always geniuses. Uh, it's probably closer to the truth. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily uh, think that, that do things differently. But I will, this one example uh, I'll bring up, which is that when I was at the Kentucky Derby, um, you know, the day before the Kentucky Derby is actually the second largest uh, sporting event in America. It's the Oaks Day. The largest sporting event in America is the Kentucky Derby. And um, there, and we actually have a weather station set up inside Churchill Downs um, with FEMA people and everything like that. It's, it's that big a deal. And it's Kentucky. There are thunderstorms in May. So they're essentially forecasting lightning, like on, right next, right on the stadium, uh, right at the, the racetrack. And uh, we decided to, uh, to call off the Kentucky Oaks race, which is live on television, and to postpone it. And it's the first time we've ever done it in the 135-year history because all the models, you know, an hour and a half out before the race said that lightning was going to definitely hit right on top of us. And with rain, um, it's just for human safety issues. 
so my CEO and I were sitting in the room and my and walking with the, the weather people and my CEO looks at me and just looks straight at me and says, it's your call. Uh, so I made the call. I canceled it. I postponed it. And you know what happened, right? Yeah. You know? the, sun, the, the, the clouds broke. The sun shone through. Absolutely. And, and, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. So, you know, there was some lightning, but it was about a mile and a half away. But there, uh, the reality of it was, you know, we're, we lost some rating points. We lost, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars in wagers uh, on that. Um, I didn't get fired. You know, I, I'm still standing. Um, yeah. But it was definitely, you know, if you're going to tell me that, that there's going to be lightning, you better damn be lightning. Yeah. yeah. You know, on reflection, on the information that you had at the time, I, I bet you the answer would be the same if it comes up again. I, I think it, yeah, you know, it's one of those risk risk equations where if you get it wrong, um, uh, then the consequences can be really, uh, uh, really horrific. Yes, and look, it's it also it's a it's a sporting event, right? At the end of the day, right? It's a what we sold what we sold there was fun. You know, we sell a party. That's what what it is, and for people to come and enjoy themselves, not that enjoyable if people get hurt. So. Um, we definitely err on the side of, of being a little conservative. At least I did. Um, and I say the no regrets, but I definitely, uh, it was a difficult dinner conversation the next couple of days. And, and when earnings came out, and and I think my CEO had some fun with me too because the earnings script, uh, there we go. Well, year over year earnings is down you know, due to our GC's decision. On <laughs> That was the first well, draft of the script. I'll tell you what, Alan, makes for a great story though. It makes for a superb dinner time story. Um, Alan, next question, um, and again, uh, uh, coming to a, uh, at the end of our session now, but I usually like to ask this one. Advice to your 25-year-old self? You know, I think um, I look back to my 25-year-old self and I just cringe. I, um, I'm very, very happy that we did not have things like this, podcast, Twitter, um, uh, things, because, you know, um, the dumb things I did it. Uh, and said are not. Uh, that's right. There's there's no record of it, is there? No Alan? record. Nobody exactly. will ever, ever find out. That's right. So so that's good uh, from that perspective. Yep. But I think the the other part of advice would be just to be um, more accepting advice. I mean, as a young man, yep. I was in a hurry. I uh, like most um, young adults. I was. I thought I knew it all, and yep. on upon reflection, there's so much I've learned in a lifetime. There's just so yep. much that I had the opportunity to learn and to be able to go back to my younger self and say, yeah, just, you know, cool it with the ego a little bit and, and tap yeah. it down and just uh, open your ears and listen. Yeah, when I see the same eye rolls of my adult children that I used to deliver to my parents, um, and I look, and of course I'm seeing through those through my parents' eyes, thinking they're doing exactly what I did to my kids when I thought in the early twenties I knew it all. Um, uh, sorry, doing to my parents when I thought in that age I knew it all. But it, it, it's funny how um, age bestows that kind of wisdom, and then realization actually I didn't know it all, um, and uh, I probably should have listened um, a, a little bit more than I did. Although having said that. Um, you do end up listening. It just takes a while for it to uh, for you to, re- uh, to, to to realize that you understood it or to understand it. Absolutely, it's just yeah. 
yeah, looking back on on those days, that and also, uh, I was actually going through some pictures of my uh, teenage daughter uh, the other day. So my other bit of advice is, what the hell was I thinking? Was other things I was wearing? <laughs> Alan, what are you most proud of now, both uh, professionally and personally? You know, professionally, I think it's an easy question. It's it's the people that have worked for me um, and have worked uh, have done a great job to uh, make me look good for lack of a better word. And I can look back, I can look down and see the tree um, that they are at, right? Their general counsels are great companies now and uh, have great careers. And I'm so very proud of the fact that um, that I got the opportunity to work with them, um, that I can call upon them as friends, uh, as people that I seek advice from now, and also as uh, recruiters, right? I am able to uh, hire great people because I can just tell them, hey, talk to A, B, and C who've worked for me, who have gone these great careers. Um, so I'm very, very proud of the work that they've done. Uh, and personally, it's my kids. Yeah, I have a, I'm the father of the three kids, you know, 14, nine, and five. And the resilience in you know, going through this journey with me, yeah, to moving all throughout the country and moving uh, and having to, to see their dad, you know, work these jobs where he's utterly unqualified for. Um, and to, to do all that. Um, and to see what kind of people that they're growing up to be. That's fantastic. And um, uh, Alan, I'm sure you proved your wife wrong. Um, three years in the role, it seemed like you're absolutely smashing it. So Alan, thank you very much for joining me on the show, for sharing your story. I've had a, uh, I'm an absolute blast of a time. Absolutely, this was fun. Thank you listeners for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.